Welcome to a special bonus episode of HPP as Drew Barton and myself, Rich Harris, will be interviewing a basketball legend, Len Amore. Len graduated from the University of Maryland in 1974, where he was a three-time All-ACC selection and an All-American in 1974. He is still Maryland's all-time leading rebounder in both total rebounds and rebounds per game. The 13th overall pick in the 1974 draft, he played a total of 11 years in the ABA and NBA. Following his playing career, Len earned a JD from the Harvard Law School in 1987, and since then, his numerous projects and endeavors have included practicing law, serving as the president of the National Basketball Retired Players Association, working as a broadcast analyst for ESPN, CBS, Fox, and others, and uh, serving on the board of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics and teaching at Columbia University. Welcome, Mr. Elmore. May I call you Len? Absolutely. Thank you All for right. the opportunity. Yes, we were very honored. Um, uh, <laughs> I believe I have your rookie MBA card or your rookie ABA card. Um, I don't know which it is. It's it, it was one year they made them oversized. I don't know if you were aware, you know, that they were. That was, they made that them. was the second. That was the second year. The first year uh, in the ABA uh, was a normal size card. Our second. Oh, year okay. So I have oversized. Card. Neither. I missed both rookie seasons. Oh, rich. <laughs> well, I, I have the card. Um, all right. So in 1974, you participated in what many have called the greatest game in ACC history. Uh, both teams were uh, ranked top five in the country. Um, NC State defeated your Terrapins 103 to 100 in the uh, championship in overtime. And the Wolfpack would go on to win the national championship, uh, beating uh, Bill Walton in UCLA and John Wooden, of course. Uh, at the unfortunately, at the time, each the each conference could only send one team, um, and so you your team was left out of the process. This actually forced the NCAA to expand the tournament eventually. Uh, but your team featured six NBA prospects, and it's probably considered the greatest team ever to not make the tournament. So when you look back, what are your most vivid memories from that great season? Uh, you finished fourth in the country. Uh, that year, and uh, what are your most vivid memories from that game? And how often do you look back on that game and that season and say, "If only"? Uh, well, to answer those questions, kind of in sequence, uh, you know, it was it was a, a great year for our team. Obviously, we uh, we tried to finish strong. Our first game of the season was against UCLA at Pauley Pavilion, and um, we lost by one there. Which probably means uh, we won by ten on a neutral site, but that's right, a right. whole other story. And you know, Bill Walton, who had just came off of a, a, a almost perfect game against Memphis State in the championship the year before, shot twenty three of twenty four, I think, from the field. Um, you know, that was that was my challenge, and you know, I, I certainly remember watching the tape of that Memphis State game all summer. So I, I pretty much think I was ready for it. And then I remember that game, the first two uh, plays went to Walton. Um, he got both shots blocked, uh, got me up in the air and, and drew a foul on the third one. And that's on the cover of Sports Illustrated, uh, a December 1973 cover. 
but Bill shot eight for 24 that game. Um, you know, I wound up having a double-double, I think, uh, like 19 and 15. But uh, And Bill, that's no mistake, he had 27 rebounds, but uh, he never left the paint. So that's uh, that accounts for that. But unfortunately, our two stars, John, Tom McMillan and John Lucas, didn't have the games we would expect from them. And still, uh, we outscored them down the stretch 9-0, only to lose on the last second play a um, hand check by the late Dave Myers that was right in front of uh, official Booker Turner, whose nickname was Booker Bruin at the time. Uh, so, you know, that tells you a little bit about uh, that story, but that was how we started our season. Went on to reel off a, a bunch of games in a row. Obviously arch, our arch nemesis was NC state. And throughout that year, they were ranked number one in the nation and we were ranked anywhere two or three. And, um, you know, we, we just couldn't get over the hump with them. Their biggest difference uh, was David Thompson, who, you know, at that time was the best player in college basketball. Um, and, you know, maybe for his period, the, the greatest player during that time. Um, and then when we get to, as you mentioned, the ACC tournament, you know, here we are in the championship game, knowing only one team was going to go to the NCAA tournament um you know it was heartbreaking to lose to them in overtime uh in greensboro north carolina uh as i say i I still look at the free throw discrepancy and you know realize that something was wrong and that just as an aside uh the acc tournament was always held in, in greensboro north carolina and you know normally one of the big four wake duke carolina or nc state would win it uh, the first year they moved it out of North Carolina, which was 1976, lo and behold, Virginia wins. So that <laughs> kind of tells you something. But, that but Ra- never the- was that Ralph Sampson? Um, no, that was uh, Wally Walker and, um, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, not, not really well-known people. It was kind of an upset. But, but in the end, you know, that was, uh, that was our season. We were invited to the NIT, but we turned it down because uh, my sophomore year, we won the NIT. Right. Know, people don't realize that was that was Maryland's first national championship, uh, not the 2002 championship. Uh, and the NIT still was pretty highly regarded back in, in 1972. Uh, you know, obviously today people don't look upon it as, as anything meaningful, but back then it was relatively meaningful. And, um, you know, so we, we took pride in that. And my senior year, we decided it's time to go back. A couple of us prepare for. Uh, you know, the tournaments uh, later on that would help scouts decide who would be drafted in the NBA. Uh, others, you know, would go back to class and hanging out on the mall and throwing Frisbees. So that was uh, that that was a memory of that particular year. All righty. I'm going to pass the next question over to Drew. Hey, Mr. Elmore. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's really exciting for myself. Um, it was fun to go back and kind of look at the history of the league and, you know, your, your role in all of that. And so as we're talking about kind of basketball in the 70s, um, there was another heartbreaking situation, obviously, with the 72 Olympic team. I know you yourself weren't on that squad, but I know your teammate Tom McMillan did play. And we just had a kind of a lot of questions for you surrounding. It was obviously a controversial game with, you know, the loss to the Soviet Union. And I was just kind of curious if you were invited to the tryouts. You know, how did Bill Walton and I believe Bob McAdoo didn't make the team either? And, you know, were you glad to not have to be involved in that process? And, you know, have you talked to Tom about it? And, and what are his thoughts about, you know, Again, a, a controversial loss, to say the least. Well, first of all, I mean, initially I was not invited. Uh, and then I wound up getting an invite. But, you know, I turned it down for 
you know, what I would consider political reasons. Um, you know, during that time, I, you know, we still were in kind of activist mode. Um, you know, we were still, our country was still involved in, in Southeast Asia. And also, quite honestly, um, you know, I, I wasn't a fan of Hank Iba. Um, so for a number of reasons, things that I had heard from people uh, around it. So, you know, I, I didn't really put a lot of stock in, in playing in the Olympics and, and representing my country. Obviously, as you get older, you realize the importance of it. But at that time, I thought, you know, that the activist element was, was more important. And, you know, the person that I admired very much, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who did not play in the 68 Olympics for that reason, um, you know, it kind of stuck in my head. But, you know, speaking to Tom, um, you know, Doug Collins, who, who was a friend of mine, um, you know, at the time we we played in a bunch of postseason tournaments together. Uh, a couple of other guys, uh, you know, reckon Mike Bantam, who was also on that team, you know, they obviously will still not accept uh, the, the silver medal uh, because they obviously know that that game uh, essentially was taken away from them. The, the rug was pulled out. And, and you know, the, the highly politicized Olympics uh, was something that, quite honestly, when you look at 72 also, overshadowing all of that um, was the, uh, the horrific uh, murders of, of the Israeli athletes. And, you know, you, you put all those things together. Honestly, I was glad that I was not there. And, um, you know, for whatever reasons I had, and, and you know, I'd be certainly mournful of those Israeli athletes. Um, but in the end, you know, I think that many of those guys, and, and another friend of mine, Kevin Joyce, uh, was on that team as well. Kevin Joyce was a great player for South Carolina. We were teammates with the Indiana Pacers. They, they don't speak of it a whole lot. I think it's a huge sore spot for them, um, recognizing that they deserve the gold medal, and as I said, had it snatched away from them. But, but I, I think what it did was highlight the over-politicization of, of the Olympics. You know, at one time, they didn't want to uh, politicize utilizing um, the, the platform for protest, you know, as we saw in 68. But all of a sudden, it became political, you know, as the Soviet Union uh, flexed their muscles with judges, et cetera. Um, you know, nobody really seemed to have a problem with that. So... I think going forward, the Olympics realized that there are a lot of changes in place. And, you know, to this day, obviously, the United States also uh, had a couple of wake up calls even beyond that with regard to their dominance in, in Olympic basketball. And, you know, now we're back in, in an area where, you know, I think that people respect that, uh, you know, this is our game and, and we're going to continue to be dominant, although the world has caught up uh, drastically to the point where we're highly competitive. So um, after college, <clears throat> you were a first-round pick in both the uh, NBA and ABA, and uh, your pro career began with the Pacers. Um, <clears throat> and before the merger, you, you were in the ABA for two seasons. Um, I've always thought personally that the ABA and NBA were on par. And, uh, and in some ways, given that they had the three-point line, um, they were ahead of the NBA in certain ways. But I, I just recently read this. Uh, the, the, in the head-to-head -head games, now, of course, these were exhibition games, but the ABA had a 62-34 to 34 record against the NBA, almost beat them two, two out of every three games. So what are your thoughts on the uh, ABA experience? Do, do you feel that the quality of basketball was, um, was similar um, 
you know, should those records, you know, like be treated the same, looked at the same? And I wondered also, did the, all the antitrust laws, the player contract issues of the day inspire you to go to law school? <laughs> um, no, the, I'll answer the latter first. And that I didn't want to be a lawyer since I was in uh, elementary school. You know, I was a child of television and I watched shows like Perry Mason and The Defenders and, and shows like that where, you know, the lawyer was the hero. The lawyer was the voice for the voiceless and gave power to the powerless. And, you know, I was growing up during the civil rights movement and, and during protests against our presence in Southeast Asia. And, you know, I thought that I could, you could make a difference. And I wanted to be in the parade, as I say, as opposed to being a bystander. So it really didn't have any impact. And that's not the kind of law that I practice uh, with regard to antitrust. Not, not uh, so much, you know, although I was a sports agent for a period of time and did get involved in some of the, um, some of the collective bargaining uh, issues. Uh, but, you know, going um, back to the comparison of the leagues, uh, you know, I, we always believed that the ABA was better. We had better athletes. Um, the brand of basketball was wider. Uh, more wide open uh, because of the three-point shot, creating driving lanes. That's how you, you would see the, the athleticism, the extraordinary athleticism of people like Julius Irving, among others. Uh, George McGinnis, who's a Hall of Famer as well, who was my teammate my first year. He was LeBron before LeBron uh, came along with that size, the strength, and the versatility uh, that he demonstrated. Could shoot the three, could drive to the basket, could rebound, could dish uh dimes he was he was a tremendous tremendous player um you know you look at david thompson as i mentioned before uh so a a a ton of athletes um you know populated the aba rosters particularly towards the end um you know the merger occurred in, in 1976 unfortunately uh in 75 my last year in the aba uh, the last year of the aba's existence you know i averaged almost 15 and 11 uh, and really expecting to make my mark on the NBA to kind of show them. Um, but, you know, I wound up popping a ligament in my right knee. My right knee. I severed my medial collateral. And, you know, I, I missed all of the beginning of the season, tried to play, only could come back for six games in January, wearing the Nicholas brace, which was the same brace that Joe Namath and a lot of football players wore. And you just can't play with that thing on. And so I wound up missing the rest of the season. Um, but, you know, one of the measurements of, at least in my mind, one of the metrics was when you took a look at the 19, um, 1977 All-Star game um, and look at the representation of the four teams or guys who had played four teams or guys who had also played the ABA and wound up on NBA teams, you know, there was a, a huge representation uh, of those uh, former ABA players. Um, which told you that, you know, obviously the talent was certainly on par. Um, and, and yeah, I, I do believe the NBA, obviously, since they took the, the lead role uh, with regard to the merger, um, I, I think that they should include the ABA records. Um, when you take a look, I'm, I'm only given credit for like eight years instead of uh, the 10 years that I played. Um, and, and, you know, I, kind of feel again that we are being you know kind of cheated out of uh, out of a legacy uh, of, a, of a terrific league that spawned so many great players I mean you look at the way the game is played now uh, I think it's taken a step beyond the way we played it 
um, to the point where, unfortunately, I'm not a big fan of, you know, shooting three after three after three. Back then, we used it more judiciously. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, it's still, that's that's the heritage of the three-point shot beginning with the ABA. And the reason I said I wanted to show the NBA before, you know, while I was still in, in, in top form was that um, being drafted by the Washington Bullets at the time, um, you know, I was kind of lowballed in the offer. Um, and, and that's because, and, and many NBA teams did that, believing that there would be a merger, but not understanding that there were some teams that were financially solvent, like the Indiana Pacers, and who made me an offer with regard to the amount and the length of years security that just blew the Washington Bullets offer out of the water. And they did that simply because they thought that um, no ABA team could offer make a better offer. And I think that was a huge mistake for you know, a lot of the, the teams drafting in, in that year in 1974. And, you know, hence a lot of guys migrated to the ABA. Okay. Drew? First and foremost, I'm glad to hear someone kind of in agreement. People always argue with me when I say the three ball is a little bit distorted in the game. I just look at the Minnesota Timberwolves series, shooting a 28-foot yeah. three ball with 22 seconds left on the shot clock. Um, yeah, drove me and my dad insane. Um, so Len, you mentioned that you played in the uh, NBA for eight seasons and, um, you kind of touched base on this on the last question. So I'll change it up a little bit here, but uh, as you got closer towards the end of your career and as the eighties were starting to come around and obviously you had, you know, the Larry birds, the magic Johnsons and Michael Jordan's entering the league, the NBA business was changing. Um, I guess, how did your, uh, you know, views on basketball as a business change throughout your transition from the ABA to the NBA? And then you really started to see, you know, the NBA, David Stern, making these pushes to highlight these star players, star teams, star matchups into the model that it is today? Well, I mean, you could you could see it occurring. I mean, it, it hit the nadir uh, in the late 70s, uh, right before Irvin Johnson and Larry Bird came along, you know, where the playoffs were on uh, tape delay. You know, here we are. You take a look at the playoffs today in prime time and, you know, drawing the viewership that it does. But back in those days, um, we'd play the game and then we could go home and watch it after the evening, after the nighttime news, um, because there wasn't that much interest in it. Uh, and, and, you know, you could see that necessarily something had to change. Um, and, and so the business of, of the sport, when, when Johnson and, and Bird came across, the, the emphasis now became more on the individual as, as opposed to the team, you know, star quality, if you will. Uh, and that's where, I guess America was going, you know, the, the cult of personality. And I, I think the NBA uh, tapped into that uh, extremely well. I, I think, again, not only is the three-point shot overdone, I think that's overdone right now as well. But that's, you know, that's just an old guy talking <laughs> about, about uh, you know, changes that uh, they don't understand. But uh, in the end, I, I think that I saw and we saw um, you know, the changes come about. There's so many, and the reasons were pretty simple. The, the league became uh, blacker and blacker. Um, there were issues um, with regard to drug use and some other things that the people really felt was turning off uh, the viewership and, and changes had to be made. And, you know, kind of the personality and the wholesome, wholesomeness, if you will, of, uh, of a, a guy being called Magic and of course, um, you know, Larry Bird being representative of uh, middle America, 
uh, I thought they did a pretty good job of, of highlighting, you know, all of that and, you know, making it something that um, would attract either casual viewers or, or people who weren't viewers at all and, and brought them into the fold with regard to the new type of, of NBA where you had Showtime, you know, versus, um, you know, tradition in, in the Boston Celtics. So, you know, when you guys are, are talking about this and Drew, I, I can hear it in your voice. I'm sure you're paying a lot of attention to winning time, right? Uh, I mean, I take it with a grain of salt. Uh, you know, that was my dad's <laughs> era of basketball. So, you know, he's he's like refused to watch it up to a point. And then I, I sat down and said, hey, dad, look, let's just sit down, watch a couple episodes together. I was against it. And then about three episodes in, you know, he went on his, this is horrible. What is this? Where is the, and I was like, uh, I mean, well, <laughs> it, there, there's definitely, there's definitely poetic license taken, but, you know, I get a kick out of them portraying some of the guys that I played against and some guys that I played with actually. Um, and, and, you know, I, I watched that show and I, I don't mean to digress, but, you know, you watch that show and, I start to realize probably the only person who's happy with their portrayal right now is probably Pat Riley. And even then, I said the same thing. And even <laughs> I said then, the same it, thing. it demonstrated some duplicity on his part, right. which, you know, I'm sure he's not proud of. But quite honestly, uh, there's a long story, but I've had some experience with that, too. But again, I don't want to digress. You guys continue to ask the question. <laughs> um. From playing uh, in New York City as a kid all the way through the NBA, um, who were some of the greatest players that you faced? You know, some of the players that you think back of that, you know, maybe we do recognize them already, like, you know, Kareem or or maybe somebody that might surprise us. Well, believe it or not, I never played against Kareem in in, uh, in the playgrounds, in the record tournament, anything like that, because he obviously – had reached the pinnacle where he didn't have to come back there. But, you know, there are some guys that you probably um, hadn't heard of, two in particular that you play, I, we played against. And my high school team entered the Rucker tournament in the unlimited division, so we got to play some of these guys. And once I got to the pro, once I got to college, I never really had to go back to New York and play because they had such competitive uh, playing uh, at Lefty Drizel's camp. Uh, when at nighttime, all the great players in the Washington, D.C. area would gravitate to Cole Fieldhouse after camp was over. And, you know, our team, Maryland, would be able to play against some of the, the great players from the DMV. Uh, but but going back to the Rucker tournament, uh, a guy by the name of Joe Hammond, people need to take a look at Joe Hammond, who was a legend in, in the Rucker tournament during that particular time in the late 60s. Uh, another guy by the name of Pee Wee Kirkland who, you know, had a reputation of, you know, being a, a gangster, but also a great player. Um, you know, these are names that you probably wouldn't have heard of before. And, and certainly uh, playing against great high school teams like um, Boys High. I mean, we were Power Memorial and we had a reputation of our own. But, you know, the guys who played for Boys High, the guys who played for Dewitt Clinton, you can name just about, you know, any number of guys from that school, from those schools, um, you know, to, to be uh, – you know, outstanding players. And uh, even within high school, um, in, in Rice High School, I'll tell you, a guy that I played against that never went on to be any much, much of a basketball player, but was a hell of a baseball player, was John Candelaria, who yeah. played for, he was a pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah. He played basketball for LaSalle High School. And, you know, John, uh, he, was, he was a good player. Although it's funny because I'm um, watching him pitch one day and I hear Kurt Gowdy say, yeah, and Candelaria 
averaged 20 points and 20 rebounds in high school. And I'm scratching my head. I don't think so. I, <laughs> you, know, you know better than that. Um, but yeah, going back to, to the Rucker, people need to look up Joe Hammond. Joe Hammond was such a, uh, he kind of dropped out of school, was uh, his claim to fame was a statement he made. Ultimately, the pros offered him a contract and he purportedly turned it down. And his statement, uh, so his so-called statement was, reported to be that you know i make more money slinging so <laughs> uh, you know it's you know it's something to think about it, it peewee kirkman was a guy who you know i'm not sure if he did get uh, any pro opportunities but you know he's the kind of guy that would come to a game in a rolls royce he was dressed like walt frazier clyde you know would take off his stuff and go out there on the court and play and destroy everybody and get back in his car with his entourage <laughs> It was some some amazing stuff, uh, you know, back in the day. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, it was an extraordinary experience playing on the playgrounds in New York. I mean, that's where I started playing. I was a baseball player until uh, about the ninth grade. And, you know, one day my junior high school PE teacher, a substitute PE teacher, saw me goofing around in half court with some of my classmates in junior high school. And I was at least a foot taller than many of them. And asked me, don't you want to play against uh, people your size? And I said, sure, why not? Um, and so one day we get in a car and we drive to Carl Memorial. Uh, and little uh, unbeknownst to me, it was a tryout. Mm. I didn't know much about the rules of the game. So we're now playing full court. And of course, in the center jump, they jump it up, they tip it, and people take off. And I'm still standing at half court. I said, <laughs> how, do you guys, how do you guys know which way to run? <laughs> because literally, I, I only knew how to play half-court basketball. Uh, but it was after the offer was made and my parents, you know, wanted me to go to parochial school from an education standpoint that, you know, I started to immerse myself in the game. I played a little bit towards the end of my junior high school uh, career and then in the 10th grade at Power Memorial. And, you know, my sophomore year was a total learning experience. And so when you talk about the Rucker tournament, between my sophomore and junior year, it was uh, an even greater classroom uh, where, you know, I learned. I utilized instincts like anticipation and, you know, the athletic ability that I had as a baseball player and played a little football and ultimately, you know, became a, a pretty good defensive player and a rebounder. And it wasn't until between my junior and senior year that I started to polish some offensive skills, you know, just enough to be dangerous. And um, that's when the offers started coming in. And, you know, I'm proud to say I probably could have gone to any school in America because of the combination of athletic ability as well as education. So, you know, I chose Maryland after turning down St. John's where I originally wanted to go, but Lou Karnaseka decided he wanted to coach the, the Nets uh, and Lefty Drizel and George Raveling kind of swooped in and kind of dominated uh, my recruiting process, even though I visited a lot of schools just to be sure. But, you know, Maryland was a, an idyllic, an idyllic uh, place I uh, had an idyllic campus, the kind of campus you dream about when you think about going to college. Uh, and even though it was still the South, um, there were so many Northeasterners there that, you know, made me feel pretty comfortable. And the rest is history. Just a quick follow-up. Uh, was George Raveling part of Lefty's staff? Yeah. Uh, George took the lead on recruiting. Uh -huh. uh, you know, to this day, I consider him a mentor. Well, that was uh, going to be my next question. Yeah. <laughs> Drew? 
So stepping away from your career uh, as a basketball player and kind of transitioning to the time you spent broadcasting, I know that you've been an analyst for more than 30 years and you were on the call for one of the most memorable basketball games of all time. Uh, like I said, my dad and uncle, they never shut up about it. Um, the legendary, uh, you know, the 92 East uh, regional final between Duke and Kentucky were obviously Leitner hits, you know, a great kind of, you know, full court pass into a followaway jumper for the win. And, you know, what was that moment like for you to, you know, be away from the action on the court, get to observe that. Um, I can only imagine what the arena and the energy was like and have there been other games in your career that kind of rivaled it, or is that one of the standout, if not the standout moment? Well, well I've been fortunate uh, uh, during the NCAA tournament to, to cover a number of, of really quality, entertaining, competitive games. Um, you know, I, I can think of uh, UCLA and Gonzaga. I can think of Syracuse and Vermont. You know, we're talking about upsets. We're talking about drama. And of course, what increases the drama is the person sitting next to me, the play-by-play guy. And, you know, obviously one of my favorites is, is Gus Johnson. But, you know, I've also had the great pleasure of working next to another pro, different, uh, a little more understated in, in Vern Lundquist. And it's Vern and I that did the, um, the game between uh, Duke and, and Kentucky. And, and really, you didn't, uh, you didn't feel the import. I mean, during that moment, you felt, the excitement and the drama. But when you look at the overall game, one of the things that I, I definitely remember saying is that, you know, we're on the cusp of seeing a new type of player now, somebody who's big, but also versatile, can shoot from the perimeter, not relegated to the post. And the two guys I was talking about was Leitner and Jamal Mashburn, um, you know, on the, on the Kentucky side, who, again, could take you off the dribble, could shoot the ball, with from distance, but could also post you up, could rebound offensively. You know, that was a new type of, of, of basketball player. And it was good to be able to see that. Now, you know, as far as the end of the game, and also Grant Hill, who how can I forget mm. the Grant was that kind of player as well. Um, the, the thing about that game was down the stretch, it was nip and tuck, uh, coaches uh, playing chess. Uh, you know, I remember Sean Woods taking a shot uh, to put Kentucky ahead. And I, yeah, it was the craziest shot off balance, but he made it. And, you know, I remember saying, boy, that was, that was a bad shot. Uh, but, you know, it went in, you know, Sean Woods a couple of years ago reminded me of that <laughs> with a twinkle <laughs> in his eye. But, um, but I always, we wondered, you know, why Rick Pitino didn't put a man on the ball and gave Grant Hill, you know, the clear vision to throw the ball in the air. And then, you know, that in the huddle, he had to have told his guys no fouls because when the ball was in the air, instead of going after the ball, which everyone is entitled to the ball when it's in the air, instead of going after the ball, his guys backed away and allowed Leitner to catch it. And I can still see John Pelfrey step backwards uh, for a moment instead of crowding Leitner and making that shot more difficult. Uh, And Leitner just turned around, wide open look, um, you know, by the time hands went up, he had already had it lined up and shot it. And remember, he was perfect from the field that game. So, I mean, you take your hat off to him for, for that, type of, that type of play. Um, and, you know, as I said, the rest is history. Uh, it was a, an amazing moment. But you know, the more you look back on it, the more you realize, you know, what type of game it was. Um, you know, I was, uh, after the game, I was excited, but I was even more excited because that was my 40th birthday and my wife and my youngest son were there at the game as well. He was like two years old cheering. Um, you know, he ultimately 
uh, wound up playing basketball in high school, played a little bit in college, but also was a baseball player at Princeton and wound up playing basketball at the Citadel uh, for a year in his, his fifth year. But, you know, those were the things that were more important at the time. Um, when we got back on the train to go back to New York, go back home, you know, I didn't talk as much about the game as we talked about the atmosphere. I, um, <laughs> I regrettably, I lived in the Philadelphia area at the time, had tickets for that game and for unknown reasons um, decided to sell them. And I remember still watching that game on my own couch with my girlfriend's head on my lap. She was snoring. <laughs> and I'm like, I could have been there. <laughs> yeah, Rich, I've never been more disappointed. <laughs> I've never been more disappointed in all the episodes, interviews we've done. Oh, Rich, how could you not go to that game? Oh, I, I you know, I really don't recall why I ended up selling man. tickets. I really don't. <laughs> as some, as, oh, man, I don't know. As somebody who loves going back and, you know, I like to study the history of basketball, especially college hoops. Can't imagine. The, the, I can vividly remember everything, every detail about that room, you know, uh, about my couch and everything. And just, uh, I, I, I just so much regretted. I knew I was watching history. Uh, but anyway, um, so moving on to the next question. Um, I'm going to name uh, six players that I feel un are underappreciated. Several we've already talked about. Uh, four of the six had their careers cut short. Three did not make the NBA's uh, 75th anniversary team, um, which I hope we don't get too much into because I'll get on a rant. Um, <laughs> please, uh, please give me your thoughts about the guys on this list. I'll go through them one by one and um, and uh, feel free to add to this list, too. But uh, number one on mine, and, and I've, I've never understood to this day, I don't know how much you're aware but uh, it seems like a daily occurrence. People debate who's the greatest player of all time between LeBron and Michael Jordan. And to me, this man's name should be there too, but I didn't really see him play much. I know I'm, uh, I believe his career ended before you got to the NBA, but uh, we're talking about Wilt Chamberlain. And I, um, I heard an interesting stat the other day. They were talking about um, Carl Anthony Towns scoring 60 in a game. And, uh, and before they made too much of a big deal about it, he did it once. Uh, Wilt did it 32 times. There were third, there's 31 players in the history of the league who scored 60 or more. And Wilt was one of the 31 and he did it 32 times. The next is Kobe with six, but, and we could go on. We could have a whole show just about Wilt's records. Uh, they're amazing. I only, I only remember seeing him once and it was against Kareem. Um, when uh, Kareem was with the Bucks, um, and I was very little, uh, so I really couldn't even, you know, give you a honest a breakdown of that game. So why do you why do you think Wilt is not in that discussion? Uh, are his records somehow skewed, or was he that good? Not enough documentation of of what he did and who he was, and you know, today uh, so many voters are of a certain era that um, if they haven't seen this individual and haven't seen much of them, they kind of forget them. You know, I've always said that when people are judging the greatest of all time, you know, they want to own the moment. And so they're owning the moment that they've witnessed as opposed to, you know, broadening it to, to consider history. 
So I, 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 you know, these lists and stuff, I don't put any stock in, in those because that's, that's who's making the, the, the determination, people of recent vintage. I remember someone saying that um, history in sports uh, didn't start until 1979. That's when ESPN came online. Uh, so, I mean, I, that's, that to me is the reasoning. But absolutely, Wolf, based upon, you know, his impact on the NBA, I mean, when you start changing things as tangible as, you know, the, the width of the lanes, um, you know, when you make those kind of rule changes because of one individual, you know that that individual was, was highly impactful and probably, um, you know, was uh, the most dominant person in that particular era. And remember, his era spanned um, 50s, 60s, and 70s. So I, I, there's no doubt about it, Will Chamberlain has to be considered uh, the greatest or has to absolutely be in the conversation. And the same thing with Kareem. Um, you know, when you talk about the greatest college players uh, and, you know, and NBA players as well, you know, the no dunk rule, which, you know, had a profound impact on me and, and my game and my era is, is all none of us were able to dunk in college uh, during that particular time. People love to watch these young players dunk today. But in our day, you know, you had to still had to make a layup. <laughs> you know, that's that's how you scored. Yeah. You had to use the backboard or, you know, you found a way to get to the rim. Uh, and, and, and lay it in, and, and that's a little more hard, a little more difficult than just basic uh, dunking the ball. So you know, to be able to maneuver around uh, a defender to get to the basket and still just drop it in instead of using, you know, the, the power of the dunk. Um, so there are you know great players in, in that era as well. Um, so yeah, I, I I think that a lot of it has to do with um, you know voters either being present or having the history documented in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It wasn't a lot of film and very little television for people to relate to if they choose. Another, the next player on my list is Connie Hawkins, another player um, that I'm hoping that you're, he was a New York guy, I think, I believe, wasn't Connie from New yeah, York? Yeah, and, um, right, and he was Dr. J before Dr. J, as I hear it, uh, his career was unbelievably uh, cut short by not only uh, things beyond his control, but also, I believe, injuries later on in his career. Um, w w what would you like to say about Connie Hawkins? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, uh, you characterize him perfectly. Everything that Dr. J did, um, you know, uh, Connie Hawkins had done. Uh, with those types of moves, with his length, with his grace, and, and you know, obviously his sheer athleticism. Um, you know, he was a legend in the playgrounds. Uh, unfortunately, you know, this uh, association with gambling, which was non-existent, but nevertheless through innuendo, you know, never allowed him to get into the NBA. Um, you know, there's obviously uh, a point of discrimination uh, that could certainly be made at that time. Um, but, and when he finally did get his chance, he was kind of uh, towards a downhill in his career from an age standpoint. And I'm sure he wasn't in the, the condition that he needed to be in, in order to have a sustained career. Uh, that's why the injuries uh, cropped up. So yeah, I mean, Connie Hawkins is, is one of those names that you know people don't really know, particularly in this generation, but, but certainly when they see the fluidity of of some of these players and utilizing, as I said, their length and athleticism, you know, those of us who know and remember have to think of the Hawk. Right. The next person on the list um, 
is somebody who uh, I think controversy kind of followed him around a little bit. Um, and that's Pistol Pete. Uh, I know a lot of players didn't, uh, I don't know, maybe you could put it in better. Maybe you could describe that situation better. But um, the one thing that I've always found interesting about Pistol was, I mean, as we know, he averaged 40, over 40 a game at LSU for his career. Um, but somebody uh, at LSU's uh, sports department went back and looked at the tape and they came up with, they said he would have averaged over 60 if there was a three-point line. So um, not knowing Pistol at all as a person and just watching his game, you know, it was, it was a thing of beauty. Um, and so what, what, were you, what are your thoughts on Pete? Well, you know, I, I admired the guy. I mean, I, I got to know him a little bit because, you know, during the summer camp circuit, I'd see him and his dad press, you know, coming, always giving, uh, you know, the clinics on, on ball handling particularly and, and to some extent shooting, but mostly ball handling. They, they had a ton of drills that everybody copied, uh, even to this day. He doesn't get credit for some of these drills, but those are drills that, that his father, who was his coach at the time, um, you know, really, really press uh, people to, to get involved in doing. And, you know, I would have loved to have played for him because he was a guy that was pretty unselfish. If you were open, he was going to find a way to get the ball to you. And, you know, his you know, unorthodox passes were oftentimes on the money, but he just played with a flair. And, and, and you know, guys that, uh, that were his teammates uh, certainly loved playing with him. And guys who were opponents had to marvel at his ability to, to get those off. And yes, he shot with range, um, you know, and he had, he had a brand, you know, the floppy hair, the, the, the floppy long socks. Um, but, but Pete was, uh, you know, as a person, uh, he was a good guy, a good teammate. Um, there are a lot of copycats, um, you know, out there uh, that uh, played, you know, similarly, um, you know, it was just a, a shame he doesn't get more credit for, essentially what he started, um, you know, the behind the back pass. I know they say Kuzi started that, but, you know, there are a lot of guys that perfected it. And, and I think Pete Maravich is, is the reason for it. You know, the bounce pass and, and some of the other stuff. I know one guy who was similar in that vein was Ernie DiGregorio. Ah, uh, yeah. I got to play with Ernie and some of the, uh, you know, the uh, AA, the, um, what is it, the USA basketball teams, that's how I characterize it now, where we travel uh, throughout the country playing against foreign teams like the Soviet Union, who came in the year after they stole the silver medal. They came to the United States to play in a tour, and I was on the team uh, with Ernie and a bunch of other guys, and, you know, we wound up in a seven-game series against them. I think we wound up winning you know, beating them four games, uh, four games to three, or it's even six games, four games to two. Um, but it was fun playing with him. But Ernie was reminiscent of a, of a Pete Maravich. But, but overall, Pete demonstrated his, his ability, his capability in the NBA. Um, and, you know, for anybody who denigrates his capabilities, I don't think they were watching very closely. Well, no, I didn't mean that. I, I, I thought that there was a lot of hard feelings about the contract money especially his rookie contract well i mean look it, that's that's the nature of of sports pro sports and you can make that argument to this day to some extent right yes i mean one of the reasons why pete 
was a draw and if he could command that money it was the leverage that he had as a as a great white player i mean let's let's face it and you know i don't hold that against him i hold it against the business and the um the owners who felt that you know there was a need for that and i guess there was a need for for white players i remember uh the controversy with the phoenix suns um who to this day at least among players if you know you couldn't be a bench warmer uh, and play for the Suns during the 70s uh, simply because the ownership didn't think that they could draw having, you know, black players on the bench. If you were black, you had to be a starter. Uh, you're that good. And then they could populate the rest of the bench with white players, people with whom the, the uh, fans could identify. So they tried to balance winning, uh, you know, with, um, with drawing and popularity and branding, et cetera, of their team. Um, so there, it's, there were a lot of uh, arguments about situations like that, a lot of controversy. Are we talking uh, about like the Alvin Adams, Westfall, the Van Arsdales? Yeah, yeah. Talking about that, that era? That era. Yeah. And the only only black player that's coming to mind is Gar Hurd. Yeah, Gar Hurd. Ricky Sobers came a little bit later. Right, I remember uh, him. And a couple of other guys after that. Um, but But, yeah, when you think about it, you know, how many – any black players that were on that team had to be starters. Uh, right. They had to be that good um, in order to, to, to play for that team. And that, again, that was uh, based upon, and we heard an argument like that several years ago uh, from an owner or former owner of the Atlanta Hawks, who, you know, thought that, you know, one of the problems that they had was that there are too many black patrons coming to watch the game. And it, kind of frightened away the white patrons who actually spent more money on a per cap basis. Uh, you know, that was the excuses. Who said this? One of, one of the owners, uh, former owners. Of, I was going to uh, say, better be a former owner. Yeah, yeah. No, he, <laughs> he took his lumps, but, uh, but, but he, he certainly said it. All right. Moving on to the next guy on our list, and I'm going to get plaque for this, saying this, but I, I believe he was MJ before MJ, and we his name already has come up several times, and that's David Thompson. Um, so what are your thoughts on David? And I know that uh, I believe that uh, his career was kind of cut short, uh, was kind of self-induced, um, yeah. but still, I – he was the most magical player I remember from my childhood until I saw Dr. J. Yeah, no, um, David was uh, probably the most dominant player for two years in, in college basketball. Uh, you know, his sophomore and junior year, uh, my junior and senior year, as I said, he was the difference uh, why we could not beat NC State during that period of time. He was the most difficult matchup. And Going back to winning time, they had some reference to him. They, do you put a big on him? Do you put somebody smaller on? And, and that was our problem. And for uh, those two years, um, he had impact on what everybody on that team did. But we ultimately, in that championship game, because um, he, he had scored 40 points against us several times because we would always put someone 6'7", six, 6'8", six, thinking that they could match him and, 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 and challenge his jump shot, but he would elevate above. And certainly it was his elevation. It was a 42-inch vertical at the time was, was tremendous. Since then, I mean, these guys are jumping way beyond that. But at the time, that was kind of unheard of. And so, you know, trying to put a big guy on him, 
but he would outmaneuver them with his quickness and still able to score. And we finally decided how we were going to play him, where I would, you know, kind of play a one-man zone in the paint and point towards him and try to deny him uh, access to the paint. Um, his teammate, Tom Burleson, the guy I was guarding 7-4, winds up having the game of his life because <laughs> when the ball swung to the other side, here he is 7-4, he's now in the paint, and I can't push him out because the rules don't allow that. And, you know, he winds up scoring 30-something points against me where in the past he had never done that. I mean, the game before that he shot three of 19. Um, you know, so I had him bottled up pretty well. But this time it was just too, too difficult. And we still went to overtime and wound up losing in overtime despite that game of his uh, because we shut David Thompson down or considered shutting him down. Um, but he was, he was so dominant uh, because of that. Now, of course – the year I graduate, the, the following year, his senior year, they're playing Maryland and a much smaller Maryland team, and Lefty decides to put a guard on him. And the guard, Mo Howard, um, you know, one of my close friends, denied him, you know, got up and overplayed him and denied him the ball. They shut him down, and Maryland beats NC State. So, you know, he finally figured it out. It was a little too late for us. Right. But David was probably the – most dominant player of, of that era. And, you know, unfortunately, when, you know, when he got to the pros, he, he for whatever reason, uh, and he'll say it, I mean, you know, the drugs caught up with him. And, you know, it really was a knee injury. He, according to the story, he was, um, he was high at Studio 54 and fell down a, a flight of steps and injured his knee and never could recover from that. So, you know, it was certainly related, but it wasn't direct. Uh, a direct issue of, uh, of right. drugs. It was an injury that was caused in part by his condition. Right, right. Okay, next guy on the list, we've also mentioned several times. Uh, everyone now just considers him a wacky guy on TV, but uh, uh, the first dominant player uh, I remember as a child, and uh, I really didn't like him because he always won. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Bill Walton. Um, so your your thoughts on Bill? I like Bill. I mean, Bill is, uh, you know, we before we played that game, he and I got together. Um, you know, I don't know if they were trying to, uh, you know, try to disarm me or whatever. But, <laughs> you know, he was, he was friendly um, and, you know, a good person. Our political views were relatively similar. Um, and, you know, for, as a as a player, you know, he was an outstanding uh, man playing in the middle. Uh, you know, the only thing was, again, I, as a defensive player, you know, I, I studied, you know, what he did, his tendencies and everything. So I had some success against him. Uh, and, and throughout the pros, when we matched up together, he never really, he never was able to dominate me. But he, it seemed like everybody else, though, for some way, shape or form, you know, he'd get the best of them for a period of time. Unfortunately, injuries um, had some impact, uh, adverse impact on his career. Uh, and sometimes it makes people scratch their heads. He certainly deserves to be in the Hall of Fame because of his college exploits, but I'm not so sure his pro exploits. He did win a championship and, you know, he had a heck of a year that year, but throughout his career, it was more about injuries than it was about performance. And so, you know, people still scratch their heads and debate you know, how is he in the Naismith Hall of Fame based on his pro career? Right, right. Understandable. Now, 
here's uh, probably what I consider the biggest slight off the NBA's seven uh, all-time 75. And uh, we're talking about another uh, fellow ABA player, Artis Gilmore, um, in college, averaged 2020, um, took his team to face Walton Jacksonville, took Jacksonville to face UCLA in a... Actually, Walton wasn't on that team. Oh, he wasn't? No. Oh, Sydney Wicks. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my apologies. Curtis um, Rowe. Right. Because, and the reason I know that is because I was there. That was played at Cole Fieldhouse in Maryland, that championship game. Ah. And that was the day that uh, I signed to go to Maryland, left the edge. Nice. So all of, the, all of the media attention during the off day, they had nothing else to do in between the semis and, and the finals. And so they focused on you know, my signing along with one of my high school teammates. Nice. Very nice. Uh, uh, but artists, I, I will say this, that, you know, he was one of the strongest guys I ever played against, um, you know, and maybe because his game wasn't pretty, uh, but it was effective. You know, we lost to him in the Kentucky Colonels in my rookie year after upsetting San Antonio and, and the Denver Rockets, we lost to San to uh, Kentucky in the ABA finals that year. Um, and then the following year, we lost to them in the first round. And Artis was so dominant uh, from rebounding, strength on the post. You couldn't move him. Um, you know, he was big, strong. And, you know, he had he was lefty, and it, it certainly helped him as a left-hander to be a big man. Um, I tell people all the time, left-handers have an advantage because you're so accustomed to playing right-handers and – you know, when your instincts tell you to put your hand up and stuff, you're missing them. Uh, but but he was he's the kind of guy, and, and I'm puzzled too, uh, Rich, about why people don't respect his game even more. I mean, from San Antonio, Chicago Bulls, um, he was just he, he was just a, a a guy who you could not uproot out of the middle with his strength and could rebound and and, and play defense with the best of them. So, yeah, I'm I looked. Uh... Basketball reference, you know, if you look at win win shares, uh, it's a complicated metric, but uh, number one of all times, Kareem, number two is LeBron, number three is Wilt. You go down the list, all people on the list. And then at number 11 all time is Artis Gilmore, um, ahead of Oscar Robertson, ahead of Shaq, ahead of Dr. J, ahead of uh, Kobe Bryant. And uh, yet somehow they just, Totally ignore him. Uh, rather amazing. And it tells you sometimes that this is as much a beauty contest, uh, you know, once you nail it down to those who are deserving. It's as much a beauty contest as, as based on anything uh, measurable. Right. All right, Drew. I'm sorry. Yeah, that, that was no, a long, no. that was a long one. I love NBA history, and I'll do you one better than win shares. If averaging 19 points and 12 rebounds a game across 17 years isn't good enough to get you in the top 75, I don't know what is, um, personally. Um, No, I I love NBA history. I mean, these are guys that obviously are past, way past my time, but, you know, you hear the stories and everything. And um, this kind of ties to my next question, which is a bit of a two-parter. The NBA is obviously, in basketball as a whole, has shifted to a much more analytical game over the years where it's becoming a lot about these advanced numbers, win shares, you know, players, defensive, offensive ratings, PER, all these really advanced numbers that a lot of people don't understand. Um, and then I just want to get your thoughts on that as someone who played during a time and has, has kind of watched that evolution, both as a player and as a broadcaster. And then, you know, 
on the flip side of that, though, like, are there some, you know, young players, new generation players that you really do enjoy watching, though? Well, I'll say this about analytics. I mean, there are places for it. I mean, in the most rudimentary fashion, you know, we've always dealt with analytics uh, in basketball. You know, coaches look at stat sheets uh, and, you know, review uh, film and, and take uh, specialty stats to, to inform them and to form, inform their decision making. But I think we've taken it so far right now to the point where, you know, it kind of betrays the instinct of, of the game. You know, for instance, and I use the three-point shot as a great example. Yeah, the corner three, high percentage, uh, high percentage among three-point shots positions. Um, yet it's still, you know, we're still talking about 35% approximately. And it just pains me to see guys drive to the basket and, you know, turn down layups for two points um, in order to kick the ball to somebody and turn in a 95% shot into a 35% shot. It, it just for one extra point. And, and people forget about the fact that by scoring close to the basket, you're forcing the defense to adjust. And when the defense adjusts, it's going to make those shots, uh, three-point shots, even easier because of the lack of challenge. Um, you know, I also think if people are going to take threes, why aren't you measuring, you know, the difference between an inside-out three versus the lateral pass three or the three off the bounce? Because I guarantee you, uh, without knowing the math, inside out three is probably an even higher percentage shot and that's that's the way we used to play it in the in the aba to a great extent it was very rare very rare that guys would uh go one-on-one -on -one and, and moves like the step back and others um you know weren't uh, weren't really utilized that much and so again getting the defense out of position is the name of the game for the offensive end and if you can hit some mid-range shots you throw the ball inside, you force the defense to adjust. And now a better ball movement will get you better shots. That's just one example, you know, of, of metrics. And, and I think that there's no substitute for, you know, basketball knowledge and intuition of how the game is played. And, and oftentimes, you know, people have, uh, have subordinated those, uh, those virtues, if you will, and gone straight to the numbers and they haven't panned out. You know, a great example is what was just mentioned. You know, win shares. If if you know Oscar and all of these guys are so far down from what you would expect, if you were using win shares during that time to measure, you know, who would trade for this guy? Who would want this guy to be on their team? You know, would Oscar have ever gotten his his uh, championship uh, by going to the Milwaukee Bucks? Would they have traded for him based upon you know metrics like win share, et cetera? So I, I think there's a balance that needs to be struck. But right now we're, you know, we're out of whack with regard to analytics and, and, and basketball. Um, as far as young players to watch, I mean, you know, just from a pure athleticism standpoint, you know, the John Morants of the world, um, you know, who are some of the others, uh, you know, some of the great three-point shooters. Uh, but even they kind of go overboard a little bit. Uh, you know, Trey Young will take too many threes. Uh, one of the things that bothers me when I watch NBA games is back and forth uh, in tight game situations where guys, instead of looking to put pressure on the defense, they'll settle for threes. And part of it's because uh, of instinct, because that's all they shoot and that's all they practice. And, you know, you get to fatigue and you get down to the nub of the game, 
you're going to you're going to rely on instinct. And, you know, there needs to be more practice. The lack of big men who can play with their backs to the basket. Uh, very few guys can do that. That's why Jokic is, 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 is phenomenal to watch because he can play in the post. You know, he finds a way to get a shot. He jumps that high off the ground, but he's so wide and he's got such a good touch. And he's a threat when he's down low. And now his ability to pass the ball makes him even an even greater threat. And then, you know, I don't mind guys stepping outside to shoot because sometimes a big man has to pull the big man away from the basket to shoot the ball. But you've got too many other guys like a Porzingis. That's all he does. At 7-1, why do I want a 7-1 guy shooting the ball 25, 30 feet from the basket when he's got an advantage uh, that the defense has to, has to uh, take a look at? So, you know, there's so many areas that, you know, kind of make me shake my head in frustration and, and watching how the game is played because basketball is a simple game. Yeah, uh, I 100% agree. I found my first gray hair the other day and I was just joking uh, with my girlfriend because I'm, I'm born and raised in the Bay Area. So I'm a Golden State Warriors fan and have been forever. And it's because watching the Warriors play basketball sometimes is the most entertaining thing, but also drives me absolutely insane. 28. Although I do like I do like the way they move the ball and, and yeah they won't turn but, down mid range shots they won't you know? but but, but sometimes you're right sometimes yeah one on one especially Steph but how can you argue with his success I know I love Steph but <laughs> I'm like Steph a 28 foot three ball with two seconds into the shot clock I'm like really yeah. but you know I, I, I appreciate you, you on it it's also when you take those shots I don't exactly think, I don't think when the clock running down and you know, them only needing two that he would settle for something like that. He's smarter than that. But yeah, it drives me crazy sometimes. I love Jokic, by the way. Great. I'm I'm glad you brought him up. The man needs more respect. A good example of what you guys are talking about was just the other night with Minnesota and Memphis, Carl Anthony Towns, you know, launching up threes. And, uh, and all they needed to do was hold on to a seven point lead, you know, with what, six minutes to go. And they're all, you know, he's launching threes, you know? So anyway, we'll move on. Um, you, you know, you've done so many things. It's, it's, it's entirely impressive. Um, you know, being a professional basketball player, which is probably one of the most, uh, most elite clubs in the world. And then, uh, Harvard business school. Um, so, or excuse me. Uh, my apologies. Uh, <laughs> Harvard Law we, we like to make that distinction. Right. Of course. So of all the things you've accomplished, you know, including your uh, law career, uh, what are some of the things you're most proud of? Um, well, I mean, the first thing I'm most proud of is, uh, you know, my wife uh, gave birth to two wonderful sons who one's a Princeton graduate. The other is a Columbia Columbia Business School grad. Both of them are gainfully employed in, in uh, areas, sectors that they truly enjoy and are making a difference and, you know, understand their impact on society. And a lot of it comes from their mom and, and from me. So that, that's the thing I'm, I'm probably most proud of. Um, the other thing is, uh, again, getting through 10 years of, of professional basketball and despite injuries to be able to persevere and have a bit of an impact. I know that, um, you know, after I got hurt in that third year, I was kind of considered damaged goods and still got some time, but bounced around from team to team until I got to the New Jersey Nets. And suddenly I was forced to be a starter again. And, you know, that was a team that was uh, made up of a couple of old guys uh, like myself, a guy, Clarence Foots Walker, 
Um, and then a bunch of young players. Uh, our front line was an all Maryland front line, Buck Williams and Albert mm. King and myself. And, um, you know, I got there a game was into the Otis season. Otis Birdsong there? Yeah, OB was there. He was on the team. He was kind of one of the veterans that I spoke of, Ray Williams, um, the late Ray Williams. And, you know, we were a hodgepodge team put together by Larry Brown, but somehow, you know, with his coaching, and I would say that Larry Brown is the best pro coach I ever played for. Um, you know, we started out 2-13, and 13, got the gist of it, and wound up winning 44 games and made the playoffs that year with a, a bunch of young players, you know, a lot of ACC uh, tape flavor with Michael Korn and Mike Javinsky, among others. And as I said, some cast-off guys like myself getting traded from Milwaukee there. Um, and, you know, guys that they drafted and you know, solid players like Buck. Um, but, you know, that's something I'm proud of, to be a starter. I played, I think, 79, 80 games that year. Um, you know, something I hadn't done in a while. Uh, and as a starter, started all of those games. So, you know, I'm proud that I could come back and have impact. Average almost 10 points and six rebounds a game. Uh, you know, my job was to play a high post and and sometimes a low post and get the ball inside to rebound and to play defense against all the guys we talked about, uh, including, you know, Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale and, you know, some of the other guys. And we won our share of games. I mean, we, and Kareem, I mean, we beat LA in, at our place. We beat the Celtics at our place. So we could say that, you know, we won some significant games that year. Um, so that, that was something I'm proud of as well. And then obviously my entry into law school and graduating from law school, uh, you know, my ninth year uh, between the Nets and getting traded to the Knicks, you know, I felt it was probably going to be the end. Even though I had a, a, an 11th year on my contract, um, I decided I was going to take the LSATs, took a, a prep course and wound up taking the LSATs. So it did reasonably well and applied to a bunch of law schools, got accepted to those. And um, interestingly enough, you know, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, challenged me. And you're applying to all these schools you know you can get into. Try try to challenge. Why don't you try for the best, Harvard? And I looked at her and said, come on, I'm not getting in there. Said, all right, well. And so I filled out the uh, application anyway, sent it in. And lo and behold, we're in the playoffs against who? The Boston Celtics. <laughs> and that week, I get a letter in the mail, my acceptance to Harvard Law School. And so when we're on the road, we're in Boston, I decided, okay, let's see what this is all about. Uh, we had an off day. I took the tea over to Cambridge, walked around campus, had coffee in the square, you know, just looked around and went through the library. And finally, I just decided, you know what, I don't need another year. Um, I'm going. And I decided to take off. And my interest was always public interest. Uh, Always, uh, again, going back to that concept of being power for the powerless and voice for the voiceless. And, you know, so I, when I got to Harvard, I represented tenants against, uh, against landlords, uh, predatory landlords. I represented uh, the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination as an investigator. Uh, I was a third year student working for the public defender. And it was there I decided I could be more proactive and you know, better at having impact by being a prosecutor. And so I wound up going to the Kings County Brooklyn DA's office, my hometown, um, and, and worked there for four years. And the reason I got there is because I wrote a paper on Batson versus Kentucky, which was a case that um, eliminated uh, the use of peremptory challenges, striking potential jurors for no reason. Um, but most, a lot of prosecutors use it uh, 
use it in racial terms. And the only prosecutor in America that filed an amicus in favor of that was Elizabeth Holtzman, who was my boss at the time. So I decided I could, I could work for her. And so, you know, those four years, I, I felt, you know, extremely gratified. If you guys watch Law and Order, uh, I'll tell you, it's, it's pretty damn close to how we dealt. And I uh, prosecuted police misconduct uh, for my, in my last term there, which, you know, is really important because many of the same issues back then, 35 years ago, 30, 35 years ago, are what we're facing now. The only difference, it was harder for us to get convictions because today, you know, we have video. Back then, it was the word of the complainant and witnesses against the police. And, you know, the juries uh, would give deference to the police officers as opposed to, you know, the, the complainants and the witnesses. Uh, but now with uh, video evidence, et cetera, it's a little bit easier. And I emphasize a little bit easier to convict uh, you know, bad actors uh, based upon, you know, the video evidence. So going through that, um, being an agent and, and, you know, doing the right thing by my players at the time before the business got so dirty that, you know, I decided I didn't want any of that splash up on me and got out. You know, those are things uh, that I'm really proud of uh, as far as my accomplishments. And, and it all begins uh, with education and the opportunity education presents. And so now today as a teacher, you know, I've amassed all of this institutional knowledge. I remember after I practiced law, I ran a couple of companies, an education technology company to try to democratize test prep. I ran uh, iHoops for the NBA and the NCAA for a period of time before the NCAA lost interest and the NBA wanted to hijack the, the program to control the top high school students. Um, but, you know, all of those things point towards, you know, a life that, you know, I always want to try to give back, try to help make things better. And so, you know, I guess when you aggregate all those accomplishments, you know, that's what I'm most proud of. And that's why today as a teacher, I try to give that experience uh, to my students and, and give them an opportunity to understand how important it is to have impact for the good. Well, you've certainly had um, an impressive life so far. And uh, I, I, we ask you all the meaningful stuff and uh, I really do appreciate, appreciate you giving us all this time. It's uh, thank you. Well, like you and, said, it's a great Sunday afternoon. What time <laughs> to spend it with you guys. All right. All right. Thanks. All right. Uh, I'd like to thank Lynn Elmore for joining us for this special episode of HPP. Please make sure to check out our regular episode this week as we discuss the top senior prospects in the NBA draft.